Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. We are in week number two already of the sermon series, The Promise. Our Savior has come. And we've been looking at God's promise of the coming Messiah, the fulfillment of that promise, and how it was viewed through the eyes of the very first people to see that fulfillment. Last week was Simeon, and we landed on the theme of hope. This week, it is the shepherds, and we land on the theme of peace. And so I'm very excited to share this topic with you as I delved into it this week and just understanding how much I need to apply this to my own life. And so we're going to go right into the text. It's that familiar Christmas story of Luke chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 8 with the Christmas story this morning. And it reads like this. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And an angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Would you bow your heads with me and join me in prayer? Father, peace. It is so elusive for us at times. It is elusive for us in the world. It is elusive for us as individuals. There is so much turmoil in our world right now. So much conflict. We need peace. And so God, would you show us afresh and anew this morning the significance of the peace that only the Prince of Peace can bring. And would you make it real in our hearts and lives this day, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I know for many of you, one of the things you appreciate most about this season is the music, right? Christmas carols, and we've been able to sing some of those the last several weeks. And one of the common themes in those carols is peace. Uh, Consider with me for a moment these these Christmas carols that speak of peace. How about, it came upon a midnight clear, That glorious song of old from angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. Peace on the earth, goodwill to men. And we have, uh, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet their songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, 
and mercy mild. You get the idea, right? It's a common theme in our Christmas music, but as we begin this sermon on peace this morning, I want to ask the question, where is the peace? Right? We sing about it, but where is it? The the peace that the prophet Isaiah promised, that the angels declared to the shepherds, that we sing about in our carols, where is the peace? Kind of like years ago when that famous elderly woman inquired, Where's the beef, right? Some of you are old enough to remember Clara, I think, was her name. Um, here's, it, it raises the question for me, are, are we guilty of false advertising, over-promising and under-delivering? We sing about it, where is it? Here's a chart that might get us thinking a little bit more. This is a chart called The World at War in 2021, and uh, the red represents countries with reported armed clashes between state forces and or rebels in 2021. There's a lot of red on that map. Next, a similar chart. This is um, countries most affected by terrorism, according to the Global Terrorism Index. Countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, Nigeria, Syria, Somalia, Yemen, Pakistan, India. Try singing our carols about peace on earth and goodwill to men in those countries. You might get hit in the mouth, right? And it's like, what are you singing about? It's not happening. And then there's our beloved country of Haiti that we invest in so much, especially through Haiti Clean Water, where every year there are 2 million diarrheal deaths related to unsafe water and where 60% of Haitians live below the poverty line. And then even recently in Haiti, we've seen Christian missionaries kidnapped and held hostage, held for ransom. Where's the promise of peace in Haiti? Unless we think that this is simply a problem for other countries, there's this. Um, The U.S. records highest increase in nation's homicide rate in modern history. Where is the peace that we sing about? It's this kind of stuff that caused over 20 years ago the band U2 to uh, compose a song called Peace on Earth. Um, It's a a song that honestly grapples with the question that I'm presenting to you today. And the the lyrics goes like this. It says, heaven on earth, we need it now. I'm sick of all of this hanging around. Sick of sorrow, sick of pain, sick of hearing again and again that there's going to be peace on earth. Jesus, can you take the time to throw a drowning man a line? Peace on earth. Tell the ones who hear no sound, whose sons are living in the ground, peace on earth. No who's or why's, no one cries like a mother cries for peace on earth. She never got to say goodbye, to see the color in his eyes, now he's in the dirt, peace on earth. Jesus, in the song you wrote, the words are sticking in my throat, peace on earth. Hear it every Christmas time, but hope and history won't rhyme. So what's it worth, this peace on earth? Now, on one hand, we might say that's a pretty irreverent group of lyrics, right? Kind of questioning God and even making a mockery of this whole idea of peace. But have you read the Psalms? There's quite a bit of irreverence in the psalmist. How long, O Lord? How long? In the case of this particular song, the questions are simply this. How do we reconcile the promise of peace on earth with the brutal violence that fills the world? And 
Were the prophets and angels mistaken? Did they get it wrong? And did Jesus fail to bring the peace that was promised that we sing about in our carols? And so we're going to wrestle with these questions regarding the promise of peace, and we're going to look at it through four different dimensions. First of all, peace with God, the peace of God, peace with others, and then ultimately peace on earth. And so let's begin by looking at the first dimension of the promise of peace, peace with God. And here it must be noted. You got to hear this. You got to get this, or the rest of this is going to be for naught. And here it is all peace is derived from this peace, just as all conflict is derived from this conflict. Let me say it again. All peace is derived from this peace. All conflict is derived from this conflict. And you say, Chad, well, what, what conflict is that? What conflict is it that has caused every other conflict? And the answer is the conflict that sinful humanity has with a holy God. The conflict described in Romans 5.10 where it says, For if, while we were God's what? Enemies. God's enemies chew on the significance of that for a minute. In our sinful state, we are literally enemies of God. Not, not just distant from Him, not just a bit detached from Him, but enemies with God Almighty, the Creator of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as we saw in our study of the book of Revelation and how everything ends, that is not where you want to be, Right? God will ultimately triumph and judge his enemies. Well, when did this conflict with God happen? How, how did we become God's enemies? And the answer is we, every single human being, committed high treason against him and against his kingdom. We rebelled against God's authority and we put ourselves on his throne which is, in fact, the very essence of sin. And the penalty for such treason, the wages of sin, is death. Making us, as Ephesians 2.3 describes us, it says we are children of wrath. That's harsh, but true. We are God's enemies, and as such, we are children of wrath. So we find ourselves left to ourselves in our sinful condition in the worst possible position, in conflict with the ruler of the universe, as his enemies, fully deserving of his wrath. But here's the thing, it's that worst possible news that makes the gospel the best possible news, right? And to truly appreciate how good the gospel is, we got to appreciate how bad our original situation truly was. We are God's enemies and children of wrath. But here's the thing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, two simple words, turns this upside down. Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 4, two words, it says, but God. Those two words can change anything. No matter what you're going through, no matter where you're at in life, no matter how impossible your situation may seem to you today, those two words, but God, change everything. These two words change our mourning into dancing, our death into life, and our conflict with God into peace with God. For the verse goes on to say, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Can I get an amen on that? What a marvelous mystery that our enemy, our sworn enemy became our Savior. Jesus took the penalty for our sin and was nailed to a cross, the place that we deserve to be. And now it says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, our worst possible situation has become our best possible situation. The worst possible news, the best possible news. And so you can understand why the angels were so excited in Luke chapter 2 when they came to announce this. Rebellious, treasonous mankind would now be at peace with God, all because of the baby born in the manger. And so those angels rightfully praised him, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is blessed. Now, that's interesting wording, isn't it? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. And it begs the question, okay, then, with whom is God pleased? With whom is God pleased? If this is the key to being at peace with God, we got to get this right. So how do we please him? Is God pleased with those who try really hard to be good people? That's the answer I get time and time again when I ask people about their, their standing with God or, or that, that, that question I will ask repeatedly. But if you were to stand before God today and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would he say? Well, I've tried to be a good person. I've tried really hard to be good. But that is not the answer of with whom is God pleased. God is not pleased with those who try really hard to be good people because in our sinful condition, even our, quote, good deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. Because our hearts, the problem is our hearts, they are sinful to the core. Well, then is God pleased with those who try really hard to be religious? Those who show up at church most Sundays, or who put some money in the offering plate and maybe even serve in a ministry, are these the people with whom God is pleased? And the answer is, no, not them. Religious activity isn't going to please God. For the, the Jewish Pharisees in the New Testament, right, they were as religious as they come. And Jesus called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. A scathing indictment demonstrating that the religious are not those with whom God is pleased. It's not those who try really hard. It's not to be good. It's not those who try really hard to be religious. Well, then with whom is God pleased? And Hebrews eleven six 6 answers the question. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God is pleased with those who exercise saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because remember, salvation is not based on our works. It is a free gift that is received by faith, by putting our trust in Him. And so it is faith that pleases God, specifically a faith marked by trust in Jesus as the only provision for our sins. It is a trust that God is who He says He is and that He will do what He says He will do and that without Him we are nothing. That is the faith that pleases God and leads to peace with Him. It is by His grace. So my question for you today is, does this describe you? 
Have you put your trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Ultimately begging the question, do you have peace with God? There is nothing more valuable in this world. There's no amount of money that can buy the peace that comes from laying your head on your pillow at night and knowing that you are right with God. That no matter what happens, no matter what calamity may come, your eternal destiny is secure in Jesus Christ. You can know that kind of peace with God today. We would invite you to that. So, as we look at the promise of peace, we begin with peace with God. Next, let's look at the peace of God, which we desperately need, because as Jesus so bluntly put it in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said to his followers, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, trouble, difficulty, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Church, life is going to be hard even for Christians, and perhaps especially for Christians as we seek to live a life that is pleasing to God. When tribulation and trouble inevitably comes, we will need a supernatural peace that can only come from God to fill our hearts. We need not only to be at peace with God, we need the peace of God for the tribulation that Jesus told us would come. A classic picture of this in the Gospels is the story of the disciples and Jesus. They're at sea, and they encounter a storm, a great tribulation, just as Jesus said would come into their lives, and the disciples are freaked out. They have anything but the peace of God. They're crying out to Jesus. They're afraid they're going to die. They think Jesus has somehow forgotten them. And where was Jesus in the midst of the trial, the tribulation, the storm? Where was he? I love that picture. He's asleep during the storm. Not because he's neglected his disciples, not because he's careless, but because he's at peace, perfect peace illustrating for us that this supernatural peace of God can be ours even in the midst of life's storms. I suggest that the supernatural peace of God comes when we follow three specific steps. First, you must know peace with God. Don't miss this. You will not know the peace of God until you first have peace with God. Because remember, as we said earlier, all peace is derived from this peace. All conflict is derived from this conflict. If you don't have peace with God, you won't have any of the rest of this, any other kind of peace. It's the bottom line. Classic example of this was King Saul in the Old Testament. Remember this guy? A man who had severe inner conflict. Do you know why? Because he had a God conflict. No peace of God in Saul's life because he did not have peace with God. And David's music would temporarily soothe Saul's nerves, but nothing would truly bring lasting peace to Saul. Why? Because he never resolved his conflict with God. And that's the place to begin with perhaps some of you here today. You're you're desperate for having peace, but you haven't yet resolved the issue of peace with God. 
Step number two in experiencing the peace of God is to know the power of God because as we said earlier, this peace that we're talking about is supernatural. Jesus said so in John chapter 14, verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now listen to the character of it. It is not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So that the peace that Jesus brings is not as the world's peace. It's not a natural peace. This peace of Jesus is supernatural and rooted in God's power. So to know it, you must know the power of God, as described in Philippians 4, 6, where it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, what kind is it? it? It surpasses all understanding. It surpasses all understanding. It's supernatural in nature. It comes from the power of God Himself and His omnipotence, which is great news because that means that God's peace is greater than any storm that we're going to face. God's peace is more powerful than any trial that comes our way. Which leads to step number three. After we know peace with God and know the power of God, we must know the mind of God because it is the mind where the turmoil starts, right? It is the mind where the battle is fought. You say, well, Chad, isn't this a bit presumptuous to say that we can know the mind of God? And I say, absolutely not. Where do we know the mind of God? Number one in the Scriptures. Is that not an account of God's very thoughts toward us and that which is true. And then secondly, not only do we have the Scriptures, but we also have the very Spirit of God dwelling within us. I think it, God not only says it's possible for us to know the mind of God, we are intended to know the mind of God through His Word and through His Spirit. And as such, we are through those, we are conformed more and more to the mind of God, and we will experience more and more peace. The more and more that we know God's mind, the more and more we will know God's peace. And Romans 8, 6 says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So we have a responsibility. We have a role to play in experiencing the peace of God, and that is what we do with our minds. We must spend much more time thinking about what we think about. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, it gives us some clear instructions. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Does that describe your latest scrolling on the internet? Probably not. And thus, you left that scrolling on the internet probably lacking peace. All right? You got to think about what you think about, what you meditate on. Meditation is just simply what you think about. What are you setting your mind on? Verse 9, what you have heard or learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and then the God of peace will be with you. So don't fill your mind with all kinds of stressful, tumultuous stuff that takes you into bad places and then wonder, why don't I experience the peace of God. It begins and the battle is fought in the mind. So we know the peace of God when we know peace with God. We know the power of God and we know the mind of God. And that's, let's look at 
the dimension and the promise of peace, of peace with others. And there's nothing quite like the holidays to remind us of interpersonal conflict. Am I right? Things that you've been able to avoid and perhaps sweep under the rug all year long, suddenly at the holidays, there's no avoiding it any longer, right? And they come gurgling to the surface, whether it's politics, masks, vaccines, the list goes on and on and on about how do we deal with conflict. And it seems like, unfortunately, as a society, we're inventing all kinds of new ways for us to be in conflict with one another. We desperately need to experience a fresh wave of peace with others. Well, in in that regard, I want to give you two stories of hope. Because I know some of you have broken relationships and you just say, there ain't no way that's ever going to be restored. There ain't no way there's ever going to be peace in that relationship. But then when I read my Bible, it gives me hope. Because the first story is from the Old Testament, and it's the story of Jacob and Esau. You know that one? Hard to imagine a more broken relationship. You think somebody's done you wrong? Think about Jacob, whose name literally means deceiver, who stole his older brother's blessing and stole his brother's inheritance. Huge deal, especially in that culture at that time. And so it's no surprise that the older brother Esau literally wanted to kill Jacob. He was not joking. He was going to do it. He even made a plan to do so. But Jacob, being the slippery guy that he was, he fled, he got away, and for years the brothers lived far apart, ostracized from one another, at enmity with one another. And then I I wish we had more details. I wish we knew more about what happened in Esau's heart. But then years later, miraculously, only something God could have orchestrated, only something that God could have done, the brothers are reunited. They're reconciled. Esau received his brother Jacob, the one who had wronged him so heinously, received him graciously with a heart of forgiveness. A miracle had happened, providing one of the most dramatic pictures of reconciliation I think we'll find anywhere. And church, I firmly believe that that can happen with Jacob and Esau. Then it, it, it can happen in whatever broken relationship you may be facing. And then next we have a, a New Testament story of hope and reconciliation. That is Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles were viewed by Jews to be unclean, godless, idol worshipers. There was a wall of hostility that existed between these two groups. Hated each other. They even struggled together in the church. But in Ephesians 2.14... It says, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And I love that verbiage, Jesus himself is our peace, that brought bitter enemies, Jews and Gentiles, together in one body known as the church. And again, if God can bring peace between Jews and Gentiles, he can bring peace through two people that are at odds with each other today. He himself is our peace. And so then it is no surprise that Jesus calls us to walk in his footsteps. He himself is our peace. Then those who would name his name, he calls to be peacemakers. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In all circumstances, we are called to actively pursue peace. But you'll be quick to point out, and you would be right, that it takes two to tango, doesn't it? 
It takes two. Two willing parties are necessary for peace to come about. And the truth of the matter is, and some of you have been there, and it is very, very painful. You've taken steps of, of, of humility, and you've reached out to reconcile a relationship, and you've been rebuffed. And the other party wanted nothing to do for it, and it hurt terribly. That is not your responsibility, how the other person responds. Your responsibility is faith and obedience in God's command and what he has called you to do. And so we read in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And if you take those steps of faith and obedience and reach out to make peace and reconciliation as a peacemaker, and that is not reciprocated, then please do not feel as if you have failed in some regard. You have been obedient, and God will bless you in your obedience. So far as it depends on you simply means you do everything you can do. And perhaps the Holy Spirit is speaking to some of you even right now and putting a name on your heart, a face before you, saying you've got some work to do as a peacemaker in this regard. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32, it gives us some practical advice. That's not true. That's a terrible word, isn't it? The, the Word of God never gives us advice. It gives us commands. It says in verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Wonderful, wonderful instructions for how to be a peacemaker, reminding us that it's not easy. But as I am known to say in our series on the fruits of the Spirit, that God has not called us to live naturally, but he's called us to live how? Supernaturally, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so just as God brought peace to Jacob and Esau, to Jews and Gentiles, he is more than able to bring peace to our conflicts as well. He himself is our peace. Well, let's wrap it up with the fourth dimension of peace and its promise, which is peace on earth. The kind of peace that the carols do talk about, the kind of peace that you too was singing about. Um, peace with God is great. Peace of God is great. Peace with others is great. But the question rises, will we ever experience peace on a global scale? And the answer, of course, is an emphatic yes. Yes we will experience peace on a global scale. Peace on earth and goodwill to men will be a reality. But here's, here's the thing. Here's a teachable moment for us. Here's where you two and so many others have gotten it wrong, and it's really a problem of theology. It's a problem of doctrine, specifically doctrine of the kingdom. This shows us why doctrine matters so much. Faulty doctrine will leave you disillusioned and discouraged. And that was U2's problem in writing that song, Peace on Earth. They did not have a proper theology of the kingdom. In contrast, sound doctrine of the kingdom teaches us that when, when Jesus came to earth as the baby in a manger, he inaugurated the kingdom of heaven on earth. There was absolutely a sense in which Jesus brought the kingdom as he was born in the flesh here on earth. And as, he, as we read the Gospels, and he, he taught, and he healed, and he engaged people with love and compassion, the kingdom was present among them. However, the kingdom 
will not be fully consummated. It will not come to be fully realized until Jesus returns, until he comes again. That's why Jesus instructed us to pray, Thy kingdom come. If the kingdom were already fully here, there would be no need to pray, Thy kingdom come. Come. It has not yet been fully realized. And so when it comes to this whole idea of peace on earth, the expectation of you too and so many others who have become discouraged and disillusioned because they have a wrong understanding of the kingdom, until Jesus returns again, we live in the tension of the kingdom being already because it has been inaugurated, but not yet because it has not yet been consummated. We await the return of the king to fulfill what the carols were singing about, what the angels spoke about. We wait for the king to return just as we studied for a year in the book of Revelation, and that's why that matters so very much. Jesus will return. He will put an end to evil and to sin and to his enemies once and for all. And the result of that will be a kingdom of peace on the earth. Just as it says in Isaiah chapter 11, beginning with verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That, my friends, is a representation, a picture of the coming peace on earth. But it's not here yet. It's not here yet. And until then, we cry, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We long for you to come and to consummate your kingdom, that there truly may be peace on earth. And so we've looked at this promise of peace, is peace with God, the peace of God, peace with others, peace on earth. By way of conclusion, I want to make one more point to reemphasize, and that is peace is for everyone. And there's a really interesting thing about this story in Luke 2 that we could easily gloss over if we're not careful. Um, But as we read Luke 2, verse 8, in the same region there were what? Shepherds. Shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. And it was to these shepherds that an angel appeared and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Now to readers from that culture in that time, the fact that the angels appeared to shepherds would have been quite shocking, quite unusual. Because shepherds in that place and in that time were some of the lowest of standing in all of society. I mean, think about it. They spent all their time with sheep out in the field. Not glamorous. And they were even believed by some to have the reputation of being untrustworthy, slippery, scoundrels. And yet, God chose the very first people who would hear the announcement of the Prince of Peace. He chose shepherds. That was on purpose. And I think the point, again, is that peace is for 
everyone. So if you're here this morning and you wonder if you're too far gone, you've done too much wrong, you've sinned too much, your past is too ugly, that could not be further from the truth. God went out of his way to communicate the point as he communicated to lowly shepherds that peace is for everyone. And it is for you and it is for me. And God longs and intends for us to experience that peace in its fullness. So would you pray with me? Father, we reflect this morning that you've given to us so much. We are so unworthy of the many, 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 many gifts that you have given. First and foremost, the gift of your son as we um, observe the Lord's Supper this morning. And this morning we've had the opportunity to talk about the ramifications of the Lord's Supper and all that it represents, the cross of Jesus Christ and his shed blood that it brings us that peace with God that influences all other types of peace. And so, God, I pray this morning for anyone within the sound of my voice who does not yet know you as Lord and Savior. May today be the day we are not guaranteed our next breath. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. So, God, I pray for a sense of urgency, a sense of understanding. Jesus is coming. We ask that he would come soon. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.